Today I want to start a fairly extensive series on the book of Colossians. I have confessed this to other people. I am not a good student. I have a difficult time studying. And that's something that's required of a pastor in preparation for his messages. However, in this past week, I have thoroughly enjoyed the time that I had to study the Word of God. And there was so much more that, that came across my path in the studying than I will ever be able to present in a sermon. I would encourage you to get into the Word of God. And not just as we work through this book of Colossians to read it in church on Sunday, but to take it home, to study it, to read it, to apply it to your lives. This is an incredible book, an incredible challenge to us. The book of Colossians contains only four chapters and a total of 95 verses. But it would require, honestly, the rest of our lives and all of eternity to understand the depths of the truth that is contained within this book. Because the theme of the book of Colossians, and thus my title for this entire series, is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Preeminence means the fact of surpassing all others. Collins Dictionary defines preeminence as the quality or state of being extremely eminent or distinguished. The state of being outstanding. This is the theme of the book of Colossians, the fact that Jesus Christ is preeminent. Some synonyms for preeminence. Superiority, supremacy, greatness, excellence, distinction, prominence, importance. All of these describe Jesus Christ as he is presented in the book of Colossians. As I said, the theme is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. I will use supremacy quite interchangeably as we work our way through the book. The book declares that Jesus Christ is supreme over absolutely everything. He is preeminent. He is sovereign God. I'm going to read a couple of verses here. It's not where we're going to take the passage from or the, the message from this morning, but turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. And in a few verses here, I want to show you just exactly how it unveils or reveals the preeminence the, the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 to 20. And actually, before we go there, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to open your word. We thank you that your word reveals Jesus Christ. Lord, help us not to pass lightly over this, but help us to dwell on the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. Help us to invest ourselves both in understanding and in bringing our lives into line with who you are. May we make you first and foremost in our life. May it not just be a theory we learn, but something that is carried out practically in our everyday. We confess, God, that we have not placed you first. We confess, Jesus Christ, that we have relegated you so often to not just second or third, but way down the line. And we confess that and ask that you would forgive us. Help us this morning to see you for who you are and to give you that first place in everything. And I pray that you would anoint me to proclaim your word in such a way as to bring you glory and honor and praise. Anoint us, your people, with your Holy Spirit to understand the truth of your word. May it impact us for eternity. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read starting in verse 13 to the end of verse 20. And then we'll skip down to chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. He, that is Jesus Christ, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And over to chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. And I just read that this morning to give you a taste, a brief view of the, the greatness, the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. To give you a taste of, of what this book contains, the depth of the knowledge that is within this book that Paul penned to these people. Challenging them to put Jesus Christ first in every detail of their life. It truly does declare that Jesus Christ is supreme. As we go through this book, we'll discover that the first two chapters, chapter 1 and 2, declare that preeminence to us, the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. And the last two chapters, chapter 3 and 4, show what our response to the preeminence of Christ must be. So some of the verses that I just read, they declare Jesus Christ in his supremacy. And chapter 3 and 4 is going to challenge us that what are we going to do with this one who is supreme God, who is preeminent in everything. In that sense, the book of Colossians breaks down similar to many of the other Pauline epistles, the first half doctrine and the second half application. The first half is declaring Christ's supremacy. The second half is prompting us to make Christ preeminent in our life to make sure we acknowledge him and we live as him being sovereign and supreme in our life in every detail. And as we work through the book, I will be challenging us with that challenge or that question. Christ is supreme. He is preeminent. Is he preeminent in your life? Is Jesus Christ first and foremost for you? Please do not separate doctrine from application. Don't separate your beliefs from your actions, but allow your beliefs to dictate your actions. Allow the doctrine in the first two chapters of the preeminence of Jesus Christ to dictate how you will live. If it doesn't dictate how you will live, then you don't truly believe it. If you don't submit to Jesus Christ as sovereign in every area, then you don't truly believe he is sovereign in every area. So we'll look at the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the supremacy, the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, and then we'll challenge us, what does that mean to me? How does my life reflect that? Does my life reflect it? Don't separate the two. Learn from the beginning, absolutely. Come to understand it, but make sure that it is applied in your life. We are to be informed by the word of God. Yes, that is true. But more importantly, we are to be transformed by the word of God. And my desire is that we see, as we see the preeminence of Jesus Christ, we would be transformed. Transformed into the image of Jesus Christ so that everything we think and do and say is as Jesus Christ would. The book of Colossians shows us this preeminence of Jesus Christ and demands of us that we give Jesus Christ supremacy in our life. And I fear that I will fall very short in being able to declare to you Jesus Christ in all his supremacy. It makes sense that I'm not going to be able to. I will fall short because it will take us eternity to begin to grasp the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. Knowing that I'm going to fall short in that, I came across a quote which I thought would 
help us to see the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And it's a fairly lengthy one. It's by John Piper from one of his books. And I want to share that with you this morning because he puts it in better words than I could. This is speaking of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He says, Oh, that the risen living Christ would come to us even now by his spirit and through his word and reveal to us the supremacy of his deity, equal with God the Father in all his attributes, the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature, infinite, boundless in all his excellencies, the supremacy of his eternality that makes the mind of man explode with the unsearchable thought that Christ never had a beginning but always was, sheer, absolute reality, while all the universe is fragile, contingent, like a shadow by comparison to his all-defining, ever-existing substance." the supremacy of his never-changing constancy in all his virtues and in all his character and in all his commitments, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The supremacy of his knowledge that makes the Library of Congress look like a matchbox and all the information on the internet look like a 1940s farmer's almanac and quantum physics and everything Stephen Hawking ever dreamed seem like a first-grade reader. The supremacy of his wisdom that has never been perplexed by any complication and can never be counseled by the wisest of men. The supremacy of his authority over heaven and earth and hell, without whose permission no man and no demon can move one inch, who changes times and seasons, removes kings and sets up kings, does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? The supremacy of his providence, without which not a single bird falls to the ground in the furthest reaches of the Amazon forest or a single hair of any head turns black or white. The supremacy of his word that moment by moment upholds the universe and holds in being all the molecules and atoms and some atomic world that we have never yet dreamed of. The supremacy of his power to walk on water, cleanse lepers and heal the lame, open the eyes of the blind, cause the deaf to hear, the storms to cease and the dead to rise with a single word or even a thought. The supremacy of his purity never to sin or to have one millisecond of a bad attitude or an evil lustful thought. The supremacy of his trustworthiness never to break his word or let one promise fall to the ground. The supremacy of his justice to render in due time all moral accounts in the universe settled either under the cross, on the cross, sorry, or in hell. The supremacy of his patience to endure our dullness for decade after decade and to hold back his final judgment on this land and on the world that they might repent. The supremacy of his sovereignty, sorry, his sovereign servant obedience to keep his father's commandments perfectly and then embrace the excruciating pain of the cross willingly. The supremacy of his meekness and lowliness and tenderness that will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. The supremacy of his wrath that will one day explode against this world with such fierceness that people will call out for the rocks and the mountains to crush them rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. The supremacy of his grace that gives life to spiritually dead rebels, wakens faith in hell-bound haters of God, and justifies the ungodly with his own righteousness. The supremacy of his love, that willingly dies for us, even while we were sinners, and frees us for the ever-increasing joy in making much of him forever. 
the supremacy of his own inexhaustible gladness in the fellowship of the Trinity, the infinite power and energy that gave rise to all the universe and will one day be the inheritance of every struggling saint. Isn't that an incredible list, a repertoire of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that he is supreme, he is preeminent in everything? Is he preeminent in your life? The preeminence of Jesus Christ is central to this book, and we dare not glance casually or quickly at such an incredible topic, the preeminence of Christ. Before we delve headlong, it seems like we already are, but before we delve headlong into the book, I want to start with an introduction to the book. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's as far as we're going to go this morning. The book is written by Paul the Apostle. We see that here with apparent input or at least alongside of Timothy. It is written by the will of God. They are called by the will of God. And we could spend quite a bit of time looking at at that and discovering what it means that he was an apostle by the will of God, but we're going to take that by faith. From church history, we believe that it was written between 60 and 62 in the year of our Lord, within the same time frame as Ephesians and Philemon. At the time that it was written, Paul was imprisoned in Rome. We see that from Colossians chapter 4, verse 18, the last verse. It says, this salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. We see here that the work of Jesus Christ was continuing in Paul, in his writing of this, even while he was chained in prison. We see here in the introduction that Paul mentions Timothy either to commend Timothy to them or to encourage them to follow the words of Timothy. Timothy, though with Paul at this time, was pastor of the church in Ephesus. This is just getting some context for the book. So it's written with Paul, and Timothy is there beside him, even though he's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. It is in Roman prison somewhere. The church in Ephesus, which which Timothy was the pastor of, would have been a sister church, in a sense, to this church in Colossae. And the epistles to Colossae and to the church in Ephesus were to be read in all of the churches. Ephesus and the city of Colossae was about 170 kilometers apart. Um, They're in what is now the northwest corner of Turkey. We see that there is that great connect between these two churches, between the and between the two books, the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians, but between those two churches, the church of Ephesus and the church of Colossae. And that connect goes beyond just Timothy being the pastor of one and commanded to the other. Matter of fact, the book of Ephesians and Colossians act as a commentary on each other. In Ephesians, Paul speaks of the church of Christ. And it gives guidance and example, and it speaks about the body and the work that he's doing. Whereas in Colossians, Paul speaks of Christ, of the church. So one is a commentary on the other. Matter of fact, some have gone so far as to say that Paul had already written the outline or the, uh, at least a draft of the book of Ephesians. And when Epaphras came to him from Colossae and met him in Rome in prison and presented him with the problems that he took the outline from the book of Ephesians that he already prepared and he took it and he wrote the book of Colossians with specific details to them. So it's a draft maybe of Ephesians, which makes sense as to why it, it falls so much in line with it. But it is addressing to the church in Colossae their specific issues and struggles. So there is great correlation between these two books. Remarkably the same, yet specific in detail. 
So from Paul and Timothy, we have this short, powerful book to the church in Colossae about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's by way of introduction. But why was this book written? And to whom was it written? In looking at the why and the whom, I want to leave you with a message this morning rather than just an introduction. I dislike giving information, even in the form of a context or an introduction for a book, without actually giving a sermon that gives you something that you can take home and mull over. So this will be the actual sermon in my introduction this morning. And it is going to be taken from one phrase in verse 2. Now there's several phrases there in verse 1 and 2 that we could take it from. As I mentioned, you could look at the will of God in regards to a Paul being an apostle. You could look at what grace and peace means from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace being a distinctly Greek greeting. Peace being a distinctly Jewish greeting. He's bringing together the worlds of the Gentiles and the, uh, and the Jews. But we're not going to look at those two things. We're going to look at one very simple phrase. It says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Now you may wonder how or why I would choose that portion of a verse, but I, I hope and pray that you'll bear with me. From that portion of the verse, in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, I've come to the title of Certainty in Uncertain Times. And I want to challenge you with that this morning. As we look at and discuss over the next months the supremacy of Jesus Christ, is your certainty in Jesus Christ? Is your certainty in life Is it in your possessions or your employment or is it in your family or your home? What is your certainty in? And I want to challenge you this morning that you can have certainty in very uncertain times and see that just from this little phrase. I pray that you can say your certainty is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Paul declares here in that phrase to the church in Colossae, he calls them the followers of Christ to be saints and faithful brethren in Christ. That's the certainty. That's aspect of knowing where you stand. Saints, yes. Faithful, yes. But in Christ is certainty. He calls them saints. Saints comes from the Greek word hagios, which means sacred or pure, means blameless or consecrated or holy, all of these things. This is no standing of natural man. Natural man cannot be in and of himself a saint. The natural man is born in sin and is in and of themselves desperately wicked and in complete rebellion against God. And so no person who is in rebellion against God, who is living in the sin nature, can or would be called or should be called a saint. But as John chapter 1 verse 12 declares, as many as received him, that is Jesus Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And to those who believe in his name, we know from Romans that they are justified by faith. That they are declared righteous. That they are consecrated. That they are holy by faith in Jesus Christ. It is through the work of God in your salvation that you can be declared, that you are declared to be a saint. This word hagios has nothing to do with our modern understanding of the word, unfortunately. This is not something that you earn by the way you live It's not something that has to do with a saintly lifestyle or having performed three miracles. This is the standing of all those who thrust themselves upon the mercy of God for forgiveness of sin and eternal salvation through Jesus Christ. 
And if you have done that, if you have surrendered to Jesus Christ, you are hegios, you are holy, you are a saint. So this letter is addressed to you. Paul says here, you saints, but he also says, and faithful brethren. Your sainthood is your standing before God. Your faithfulness or being a faithful brethren is your standing before men, especially before the church. Faithful means trustworthy. Are you living before men in a trustworthy manner? Are you honest and full of integrity? This is to be your standing and reputation. You are to be saints and faithful brethren. That's who it's addressed to. And if you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a saint And I pray that you are living as a faithful brother or sister in Jesus Christ. But that last little thing that I said, in Jesus Christ, that's the key. He could have just said, you saints and you faithful people. But he said, you saints and faithful people in Christ. And that is a major theme of this book. We know that the theme overall is that Christ is preeminent. But are you in him? The only way to be declared, be declared saints and faithful brethren is to be in Jesus Christ, to have been born again of God, to have new life in Jesus Christ, to be, to live, to walk, to breathe in Jesus Christ. Is that you this morning, or are you walking and living and breathing on what you think is your own strength? Either God is God and you have submitted to him completely, or you're making yourself out to be God and you've not submitted to him at all. Is your focus and your purpose self or Jesus Christ? Is he first and foremost? Are you truly in him? I believe that you can only be certain in life. You can only be secure. You can only have confidence as you know that you are in Jesus Christ. That's where I came up with the title, Certainty in Uncertain Times. If your standing is secure in Christ, you are certain. Regardless of what the environment may bring, regardless of what the economy may bring, you are certain because your standing is in Jesus Christ. So in Christ is the place of certainty. But where do I get the message or the portion of the message in uncertain times then from this little phrase to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae? I get that uncertain times from Colossae. They were certain because they were in Christ. That was their certainty, their stability, their security. But it was an uncertain time, an uncertain place at best in Colossae. And this allows me to give a little bit more of an introduction to the book and explain what Colossae was. In the 400 years before Jesus Christ, Colossae had been a large and important city. It was a key city on a trade route from Ephesus, which historically was a port on the city of the Mediterranean, to the Euphrates. It was an important metropolis. It was a place of commerce on virtually a mountain pass. And it had been for several hundred years. However, by the first century AD, the trade route that had went right through Colossae had actually been changed to go right through Laodicea, which was north of Colossae. Matter of fact, the Romans built their major highway, bypassing the city of Colossae. And Colossae had steadily declined in size and in importance. It was a place with only a past, but no certain future. As a matter of fact, it was in such a state of decline that in 66 AD, only four or six years after Paul writes this letter, 
After an earthquake devastated the city, it was abandoned and was never rebuilt. It's abandoned. It was a city of uncertainty. Paul was writing assurances. He was writing security. He was writing of certainties in Jesus Christ to a people who were experiencing uncertainty, even just geographically. But it wasn't just geographically that it was uncertain. It was a place of religious chaos and uncertainty. There was confusion here, and nobody knows exactly all the confusion that was taking place, but there was incredible chaos in their religious upbringing, in their spiritual understanding. There was some severe deception that was taking place in the city of Colossae. And Epaphras, who was, we believe, the one who planted the church in Colossae, he goes back to Paul in Rome, and he presents to him all of this confusion and uncertainty that has been presenting itself to this struggling church in Colossae. Now, we don't have the report from Epaphras. It'd be nice if we did. Epaphras is mentioned in verse 7 here as the one who comes to Paul. If we had the report, we could say this is exactly what the problem was. We don't know exactly what the stated problems were. But we can know from the letter that Paul writes back to them what problems Paul addressed. And they are many problems. And they show incredible spiritual immaturity, uncertainty, and confusion within this city. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes to them, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world. We can see from this verse that there was a mixture, a strange mixture of Greece. Greece, of Grecian? Greek? <laughs> of Greek philosophy called Gnosticism. Gnostics believed that the world was created by a lesser god or a demigod and that Christ was just an emissary or messenger. They also believed that the true way to God was through elite or special knowledge. So there's this group that's bringing Greek philosophy in and trying to inject that into the church. But there's also, it says in that verse, traditions of men. Now that probably came or may have come from Judaism, the following of the law rather than the following of Jesus Christ. In 200 BC, there was about 2,000 Jews that were introduced or transplanted from Babylon into Colossae. And some figure that at the time that this book was written, there was actually 10,000 Jews in Colossae. And they had brought Judaism into Christianity. And that's a common theme throughout Scripture. Paul refutes that time and time again. But when he's speaking about the traditions of men here, it is possible that he was referring to following of the law, trying to maintain the ceremonial law, even though we know that Jesus Christ fulfilled the requirement of the law. These were some of the, some of the chaos, some of the confusion that was taking place. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 shows more deception that was prevalent. It says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. There was this practice of, it's called asceticism or false humility, Refraining from anything enjoyable is basically living an austere, almost a monastic-style life, depriving yourself of, uh, of anything, believing that as you deprive yourself of things, you will receive spiritual enlightenment. This was one of the practices that were taking place. There was a practice of angel worship, if not blatantly still in actuality. They elevated spiritual beings or powers to the place of God, believing that God was distant and unapproachable. So 
angels, in a sense, became that mediator between man and God, not Jesus Christ. That's idolatry in its basic form. So we have here, by Paul's refuting these problems or or correcting these problems, we have here knowledge of what some of these problems, of what some of this uncertainty is. There was a denial of the adequacy of Jesus Christ. There was strange philosophy that was coming in rather than faith. There was a spiritual awakening, but it was to angels and demons and not towards God. There was Judaistic legalism. There were many other deceptive teachings, and, and we see them refuted here. This is a place rife with spiritual conflict and uncertainty. And that is the place that the church was in. And it is good for us to be reminded that we can walk, we can live, we can be in certainty as we are in Jesus Christ, regardless of the uncertainty of the world around us. Kind of sounds like today, when you look at the church of Colossae, and the ideas that were being presented. Worship of angels, spiritual enlightenment that has nothing to do with God, legalistic religion, which says there is a way you can earn your salvation. I mean, all of these problems, they speak to us because... We live in the same world, and we deal with the same thing. And the answer is the same, that Jesus Christ is supreme, that he is sovereign, that he is preeminent over every lie, over every false belief, over every doctrine of demons, over every doctrine of anything else. Jesus Christ is supreme. He is preeminent. And so that's, that's why I want to come with this challenge. that We can be certain in uncertain times because of Jesus Christ. Paul, in this book, he brings the people of Colossae back to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, back to that preeminence of Jesus Christ. He is the answer. And the believers in Colossae, this crazy, confused, dying place, he says, you are in Jesus Christ, and you have Jesus Christ in you. Thus, you have certainty. You have stability. You have security. You have strength in Jesus Christ. You know that you are preserved in Jesus Christ. You know what your footing is. You know what your standing is. You know that you have a hope. You know that your faith is in sovereign God. You can have confidence. You can be certain because you rest in Jesus Christ. It is only possible as you rest in Christ. Are you in Christ? Can it be said of you what was said of them? Saints and faithful brothers, faithful sisters in Christ while in Napa, while in the world. In the world, but not of the world. Following our supreme leader, Jesus Christ. Let's close the prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And and even as briefly as we've been in it, just to, to see the wonder of who you are to stand in awe, Jesus Christ, that you are creator and that in you all things consist, that you were before time, that you are the designer of eternity and that you are at work in your people. It's incredible and we can't truly grasp that, but we, we give you praise, we give you thanks. Lord, help us to be willing to stand for truth to show the way, the truth, and the life to the world that so desperately needs to hear it, to live in light of it, first of all, and then to declare it to others that need to hear it. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.